from WGBH in Boston, this is The Scrub. I'm Adam Riley. In the 2014 elections, the Boston Globe set the agenda for candidates like Charlie Baker and Martha Coakley and for the rest of the media. As the Globe flexed its editorial muscle, two of the paper's most prominent political bylines belong to reporters Frank Phillips and Jim O'Sullivan. The scrum caught up with Phillips and O'Sullivan at the Globe's cozy Statehouse Bureau this week, where they spoke with me about what it's like to be an influential journalist in the middle of a hotly contested campaign. Talking with O'Sullivan and Phillips is really interesting, in part because they both got keen insights about Massachusetts politics, but they've also got this very unusual dynamic. There seems to be a good deal, I would say, of mutual respect and even admiration, but it's leavened by a tension that is part generational and part ethnic. O'Sullivan is an Irish-American Catholic. Phillips is a proud wasp. And even when they're joking about it, and they often are, there seems to be a bit of an edge there. All right, let's get started. I am Frank Phillips. I'm the Boston Globe Statehouse Bureau Chief. I've been at the Globe for 27 years. I've worked for three other papers, uh, essentially, the Lowell Sun, the Hearst-owned Boston Herald American, and then I worked for the Murdoch-owned Boston Herald Tabloid, and then I came to the Globe in 1987. Jim O'Sullivan, political reporter at the Boston Globe. I've been here about a year and a half. Uh, before that, I was at National Journal in Washington. Before that, I was at the Statehouse News Service. And before that, I was with the Dorchester Reporter. So I wanted to start by asking you guys what it's like to have high-profile roles like you guys do during a race like the one we just had. What I mean by that, how aggressive is the spin that you get from the Baker camp, Baker surrogates, uh, the Coakley camp, Coakley surrogates, how angry does Evan Felchuk get at you when you don't cover him, all that kind of stuff. And then if you if you write and, and print a story that is negative for one campaign, how sharp is the pushback? I'd start by saying that we got a lot of great political reporters at the Globe. And in a, a big campaign like this, we also get help from people who are not strictly under on the political team who come in and, and write profiles and, and write issue stories. The campaigns get hot. Every campaign gets hot, uh, whether it's the, the gubernatorial campaign or the the mayoral election um you know we've both covered presidential elections people get emotional and when you write a story that's perceived as negative about their candidate or uh, their issue if it's an issue-based race it can get uh it can get emotional at times i completely agree with uh, jim it does get hot and heavy but there's always the next day uh, and they realize that some of the some of the uh, both sides i mean Will uh, Kaiser with Baker and Doug Rubin uh, with Coakley, uh, they're mature. They've been through the, through the uh, wars in the past. And yes, they scream and yell. And yes, they get very angry. But the next day, they know they're, they're, they don't break any ties. They don't cut off uh, the relationships. And one of the tricks, I think, as a reporter that, that Jim and I would have is to make sure that we don't break off those ties. You're always polite. You don't scream back. You just press your point and say you understand what you're saying, trying to understand their side of the story, and just be fair. And when you're fair, uh, you know, there's always a relationship at the end of the day. And it gets emotional and hot and heavy, like Frank said, because there, there's a lot at stake. And that's part of what makes it fun. You know, it's, it's in a way like covering sports. It's, politics is very often a zero-sum game. When, when Frank said that, that he never yells back, do you ever yell back? He's Irish. <laughs> I'm an old money Yankee. And we just, we don't yell. 
We just it's, we don't need to yell. That, that may be part of it, but sometimes <laughs> you yell and sometimes you you know murmur softly. It's it's there's, there was a, a study out earlier this year that talked about how many more PR people there are and how much more they get paid than reporters. So you got to think about the disadvantage we're playing against here. So if you got to yell, you yell. If you got to whisper, you whisper. If you need to bribe, coax, threaten, wheedle, whatever you need to do. I I I, I don't agree. I I think you just. <laughs> Keep pressing in, pressing in, and be polite. You have the facts, and you work off the facts, and you box somebody into the corner where they're no longer being able to, you know, spin you anymore, and you get down to what the raw facts of the story are. And I don't think you need to yell and scream. Sometimes, you know, when I get scooped or they're giving it to somebody else, I know, hey, I don't get upset over that. They have to do that. That's part of the game. You just try to get as much as you can. In in a campaign like this one, like let's say you know it's two weeks before the election, for example, or three weeks, how how aggressive is the spin that you get? I mean, when you're when you're covering a campaign like this, I think Frank would agree. You have, I mean, you check in daily with these people, and you, you talk throughout the day, and and they might point you in a certain direction or try to steer you away from another story. And and these were both, I think, well-run campaigns, uh, staffed by pros, uh, knew knew what they were doing, knew how to sort of drive a story, knew how to try to play prevent defense against a story. So you talk with these folks throughout the, the day and email with them all the time. It's sort of a, a constant contact thing. It's a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome by the end, I think. When you're checking in all the time, they're sophisticated enough not to come after you every, you know, scratching at you all the time with tips here and there. Now there are a lot of Democratic operatives that will come in with uh, other information, but the real, the real pros in the campaigns uh, wait for your call. They know you're going to be checking in, and then you have a discussion, and they're sophisticated enough to present you with a tip that doesn't look like they're really uh, going overboard or being obnoxious about it. Do you ever get really dramatic dime drops, like, you know, a a sack of documents left on your doorstep or, uh, you know, a a deep throat style call from an individual who can't be identified but has something shocking to reveal about Jeff McCormick or maybe one of the other candidates? If you're lucky, that's what I call the brown envelope beat, and uh, Francis has been on that for a long time. But if you know, if you're lucky, you'll get somebody unsolicited to offer you something. And you know, it, when we talk about the the daily interactions that we have with these campaigns, to to round out the coverage and to get a better sense of uh, the full dimension of it, you talk to people outside the campaigns too. You talk to people who work in politics. You talk to people who might have worked with these people in the past, and and it gives you sort of, a, I think, a fuller account of the candidate and the campaign in general. As Jim said, it, you want that drop. You love that drop. It's always the documents. It's not necessarily anonymous. People know you that you'll keep you, keep you uh, abreast. You know, keep you in mind, and and you'll keep them confidential. But it's uh, it, it works both ways. It's not it's not as dramatic as you think, and uh, as you get a big dump of anonymous documents. I, I was just thinking that campaigns are. I just want to say that I'm so relieved that uh, I think Jim has written this, that since Ted Kennedy died, we've had nothing but campaigns and we're not covering state government and all the all the things that go on here, both, uh, you know, in a very favorable way and all the things they do, but also and all the backroom deals that are getting made, all the special interests spending money here that has gone uh, unreported, at least by the Boston Globe. And we, we are, the, I think, the, the organization that, that can do that best. And hopefully now we're going to get back in doing that. Is that stuff as enjoyable to cover on a daily or weekly basis as the campaigns? Or you like doing it? It doesn't have to be. It, 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 I mean, it depends on the story. You know, if, if it's just sort of the daily back and forth between the House and Senate or the legislature and the governor, sometimes that gets a little predictable. Uh, but if 
we're given the opportunity to dive into a story and figure out what's really going on behind a certain bill or, uh, you know, dive a little deeper into the dynamics between the branches of government. That stuff can be, I think, more enlightening than covering a campaign. I much prefer it covering the state house in that way because in campaigns, people are distort things. You're always constantly under pressure, often competitive pressure, and they're going to say, well, we'll take it elsewhere and things like that. In, in covering the state house, you have the luxury of saying, look, I really need to study this. I need to get a per- better perspective. Uh, I want to really dig into this. In campaigns, you, a lot of times they're pressuring you. There's a timetable. They want to get, they're using you to get this up on air. Uh, the Boston Globe reports that candidate X is a thief, you know, that sort of thing. And there's your byline on it. And you know they're doing it. And it's, I get very sick of it after a while. The end of, by October in almost every campaign up to the general election, I'm ready to bail out of it very quickly. Uh, when it's quiet in the campaigns early on, that's a lot more fun because you're not under that kind of pressure. In the State House, you have the same sort of thing. You can dig into things, get some things done, and do some really good journalism. We are, as you guys know, about to wrap up Governor Patrick's tenure in office. How has he worked the press over his eight years, and has, has his approach to dealing with the media changed, do you think? That's an interesting question. How has he worked the press? It's tough for me to say because he, he, I, I've worked in a couple different roles here. He hasn't really courted the press in the last couple of years at all. So, you know, I think the, f- the feeling was maybe similar to the way that he's interacted with the legislature that, geez, I don't really need these guys anymore. Um, he can be incredibly charming when he needs to be, but he can also be sort of temperamental with the press and, and, and short. But that doesn't make him very different from a lot of politicians, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I would agree in the last few years, particularly as we are more focused on, on the campaigns. The focus has been off him. He, he is a very decent, warm human being when you meet him and talk to him, and he is a good person. But he does not, he gets very short with the press, and he takes very short uh, with, with his answers. Um, I know that I, when he was a candidate, when I pushed him about his mortgages and his uh, his being on the board of a uh, of a prime uh, of a lender, Ameriquest. Yes, that was the name of it, and uh, it, 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 a lot of controversy around that. He just didn't think he should be asked those questions, and it was obnoxious. I thought, and it still is in, in a sense. So, and if you really press him, he gets very very snippy, uh, and uh, doesn't like to be pushed around, and that comes through. I think it's uh, been less so because we haven't been around him that much in, in recent years because of, again, the continual campaign mode that we're in. How do you expect uh, Governor-elect Baker to be in his dealings with the media? And I know it's, you know, we'll see what happens, but you covered him, right, in the Weldon Salucci administration. So let's start with you, Frank. What did you see from uh, the governor-elect when he was dealing with the media back then, and what do you think we'll see starting next year? I've known Charlie Baker since he got out of grad school. He was banging around the halls of the state house here, and you know, just a young kid, and and all through his time, and then in, in, in the Weld administration, he just loves to talk to you. He loves to, he'll, he'll get in an argument with a fire hydrant, uh, you know, over public policy issues. I mean, who else would have gotten weepy over a federal le- federal regulations on fishing? You know, complicated, you know, uh, policy issue. Uh, Charlie does. He he's passionate about it. And so I think he's going to want to come out, much the way Bill Weld done, and we haven't seen it since Weld and Salucci enjoyed coming out and meeting the press in, 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 a, in a very competitive way. And I hope, I hope he doesn't get a bunch of people around him in the, uh, 
that, that began with Mitt Romney, really, and, and they, they just put him in a bubble, and you couldn't get near him unless and it was very controlled situations if you did get near with him. Well, I, I hope Frank's right. I was, I was not here for Weld. I was in uh, grade school, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think ba- I've seen in Baker a, a tendency uh, to sort of veer toward the Patrick model, and I, I'm not sure, but that maybe comes out of being uh, having been in corporate world for so long, where you don't tend to have to answer to reporters. So Patrick came out of that world. Baker now he's he's had the experience of running again in ten. I'll tell you, he was a, if this campaign is any indication, uh, he his media relations capabilities improved tremendously this time around. He had some. He certainly had some gas, but it wasn't because he had grown short with the press. It's because he sort of, uh, in his terms, misspoke. If you had to pick out uh, sort of one big surprise from the season that just finished up, what would it be? If the electorate is angry and sour, as most people believe it is, then these two well-established candidates who have both run and lost before, why are people automatically going to cotton to these two frontrunners? If you had asked people two years ago who might be the frontrunners, they would have said Baker and Coakley, and that's what we saw at the end. Uh, now, there was turbulence within the campaign. Uh, both, you know, both campaigns had to deal with that. Both Baker and Coakley campaigns had to deal with that. But there were never really any fundamental sort of inflection points that radically threw the, the campaign off course. And I think we probably would have appreciated it if there had been. <laughs> you agree, Frank? Uh, in the gubernatorial race, yeah, I, I think it was uh, one of the more straightforward races I've, I've seen over my uh, many years, many more than this young man here. There was no major scandals that hit either one of these guys. Uh, you know, the, the best we could come up with was this fisherman tale, which I thought was a little overblown, uh, even by my own newspaper. I mean, I just don't, I think Charlie did have some conversation with the fisherman that, and the fisherman probably embellished his own story, so he didn't want to come forward. And it was just, a, it just, it was a, that's the best they could come up with. I kind of thought that when you watch the way the governor-elect, uh, how intense his sorrow seemed to be as he was recounting this tale and the exquisite detail he offered the big mountain of a man soaked in salt water and sweat hugging him was like hugging a rock or whatever it was i felt like once it emerged that uh you know those details were not necessarily quite right and the campaign itself started to back away from him it seemed appropriate to me for the news media to to dig into it jim do you agree with frank that we overdid it on that i don't necessarily and i i think the reason that the fisherman matters or may matter is because it was such a high wire act for Baker. If you think about where the polls were at that time, not just our poll, but other polls, internal polls run by Democrats and Republicans, basically all he had to do was sort of guide the car into the garage at that point, right? So why would you risk a a moment that could blow up in your face, whether the story was true or not, by showing this emotion that is going to capture people's attentions? You know that's going to be the sort of iconic moment emerging from that debate. And the other thing is it touched on sort of the bedrock argument of Baker's campaign, which is that the the voters they needed to get were the voters who needed to be convinced that this is somebody who's a compassionate Republican, right, who's not the Baker from 2010 who was going to deny access to homeless shelters for people who didn't have a license or identification, that this was a guy who who cared about people and was was warm enough to, to care this deeply about this fisherman. And then all of a sudden, if questions are raised, those persuadable voters think, oh, maybe this guy isn't such a nice guy. It was also in the final heat of the campaign, and, and more people, it was sort of getting that Klieg light attention at that point. I think the basic truth is there. Charlie, I know Charlie, as I said, for decades, and I've argued with him and had all kinds of experiences with him. He's not a liar. He, you know, I think he had that experience, and he just didn't 
you know, and it, it was a, a, a huge mistake there. And also, I just thought, I, I think it was worth pursuing. I think it got out of hand. And also, at the same time, we had a story. Martha Coakley had two separate nights and debates talked about putting a guy in jail that she never put in jail. Right. And that, to me, was even a more serious attorney general talking about that. You didn't read that until the inside the Metro page of the Boston Globe. Now, I'm criticizing my own paper, and I don't want to disparage Brian McGorry anymore. More than other outlets did, though, yeah. I think. Yeah, we did. We, we, we made a big issue of it. And Why do you think that didn't catch on with the media broadly? Because you guys covered it. I don't think we covered Coakley's uh, error at all, or if we did, it was only in passing, and I think the same applies to other outlets. Why does something like The Fisherman become a media sensation when Coakley not telling the truth about putting an important guy in jail doesn't? Because he cried. With the emotional grabbing of the guy, he cried. I remember sitting there looking at it with my wife, and I was looking at it, and I said, there he's, my God, he's melting down. And he finally finished crying. And I think I did what every other man, and looking at the television, I turned to the wife said, what do you think of that? Because we don't know. <laughs> Men don't understand the emotional. What do you think of that? And it was obviously a lot of turmoil out of that and a lot of interest. Right. It was an iconic moment that, that Baker provided, and, and Coakley's was sort of this... In the, came in the middle of a, a longer answer, and do voters really care whether this guy from the case four or five years ago went to jail or whether he settled? Probably not. You guys worked side by side and competed against each other back when you were working for the State House News Service, Jim, and Frank, you were in the role you're in now. Then you were away for a little bit with National Journal. Now you're back, and now you're colleagues. I still beat him, by the way. You beat me where? From D.C. several times. Oh, you did? On a number of stories. Do you have a uh, list? Off the top of my head, both Elizabeth Warren running and Joe Kennedy the third oh. running. Can I swear? Yes. Elizabeth Warren running? No, I don't think so. First of all, we can go back and first of all, we can go back and look. I at was on vacation when it happened, oh, but we but we oh, got it anyway. <laughs> look, he's got a little nickel and dime things that he gets uh, that he beat me on, but you know it's it's going to happen. But I don't think on some major stories like uh, as you opposed know. to the thousand dollar stories that you publish when you byline once or twice a month. All right. So this exchange to me points up what seems to be. Uh, a strong, a strong element of mutual respect, and I might even oh, wait, say, wait, 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 "Am I wrong about that?" I think we both right. disagree with that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. But I've heard you do this, you know, young uh, or younger Irish guy versus older. Right. Well, what you got to hear is a, a young pup running around a wet kitchen floor, banging into the furniture, just thrilled to be alive and having fun. You know, I've done this stuff before. I've done it a million times. He comes in, thinks it's, you know, it's, he, he's discovered, rediscovered the wheel. And he's going to, you know, write this great piece and let him have it. I mean, go ahead, go for it, kid. That's real exciting. But it's the bigger picture stuff, you know. As a veteran in this business, uh, that I that I look forward to and 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 get into the paper and 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 just try to teach him how to do it right. Yeah. In response, I have absolutely nothing negative to say about Francis. It's been a wonderful experience. It's it's like working in a museum, you know. He's sort of this fusty, cobweb-infested old guy who misses stories, doesn't understand the way the news business works now, but it's, a, it's precious, and he's, a, he's something of a, of a treasure and a relic, and it's been a, a wonderful experience for me all around. All right, I, I could just watch this go back and forth. There's, can I say, yeah. he's from Cohasset, the South Shore Irish, the two toilet Irish, they are the most obnoxious, I find. And now I'm stuck in a bureau with this kid. Again, nothing negative to say in response. It's just this sort of this, you capture this wonderful sepia-toned image of an entire group of people that was relevant perhaps in 1915 when newspapers were publishing caricatures of Irish with their simian faces. And it's, 
it's an experience. It's been a learning experience for me. If you were in the room, that exchange was actually a little bit electric because you guys were <laughs> smiling at each other, but there was this undercurrent of seriousness and intensity that it, it was intense. <laughs> that being said, I'm wondering, we just talked about the uh, you know Irish-WASP divide, which obviously used to be a huge thing in Boston politics, Massachusetts politics, and may still be a huge thing in the, the Globe Statehouse Bureau, but I'm wondering if you think it is important for the way Massachusetts politics work today. I wouldn't say necessarily the Irish Yankee thing. I think ethnic politics in general are still very relevant uh, in Boston. I thought the mayor's race last year was sort of a, a fascinating study of the way uh, different groups work and how really the only way to win now, and this is really how Walsh won, was he didn't just consolidate Irish support. He, he reached across to other ethnic groups, and that's pretty much how he won. Um, so ethnic politics in general, I, I think, are still very relevant. There aren't a lot of Yankees around like Francis. No, I was going to say, uh, you know, my tribe has uh, retreated to the Somerset Club and the Country Club out in Brookline, and there's summer homes on Nantucket and Isn't Martha's Charlie Vineyard. Isn't Charlie years, though? Not really. I mean, right. you'd have to understand that. <laughs> no, explain that. Uh, he's a wasp, but there's a difference between old Yankee and, you know, I think the Baker's roots are in, in the Midwest, which is fine. I mean, the, the, we, we accept that. But <laughs> I, I, I absolutely delight, and in all seriousness, I, I, I love the teasing that goes on, particularly what I take incoming flack, and it's fun to give it out. Uh, but I do think my people have sort of faded away. But there is still, you know, there's the, the Italian-Americans. There's a, I know, working in Lowell, the Franco-Americans and the Greeks. And that's where I, I, you know, back 45 years ago when I broke into this business, one of the things I had to learn about politics, it was based on these ethnic uh, dividing lines. These, uh, and it, it was who got appointments to the local housing authority and who owned it and, and, and divided it up. And so, we, and I still see it. I still see it around this this building, uh, the state house, and I see it in Massachusetts politics, just in general. It's not virulent. It's not um, it's not hateful, but it's fun. I th it's a really a lot of fun. It comes out it comes out at St. Patrick's Day, and the Irish particularly love it. One of the great things about covering politics is that it's a great way to cover a place. You know, and, and part of that story. Uh, and this is why politics is, and journalism in general is instant history, is, is telling the stories of these groups that are coming up now. When I was at the Dorchester Reporter, it was fascinating to watch the Vietnamese-American community start to sort of flex this muscle a little bit. And you're seeing that now in Boston as more politicians of color are getting elected and these different ethnic groups are starting to wield muscle and work with other groups and, and form coalitions. And it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's part, of, part of the history of a city. Jim O'Sullivan, Frank Phillips, thank you both for taking time to talk with us today. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Thank you, Adam. It was great. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. Or I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, to subscribe to the Scrum Podcast, please visit our website. That's wgbhnews.org slash scrum. There are links there to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also listen to past episodes, read our blog posts, and find out why the Scrum's own David Bernstein thinks that Republican women are getting the short end of the stick. You can find me, Adam Riley, on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. That's R-E-I-L-L-Y, Adam. The Scrum team includes WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis, 
WGBH political analyst David Bernstein and producer Abby Ruzica. We had help today from engineer Alan Mattis. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News, and I'll talk to you next week. Back yonder to her uncle in Podunk. Now newspapermen meet such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's uncle. Hing-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people.